Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Caroline Dodds-Pennock about her book titled On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. Um, This book is published in the US and the UK. Interestingly, it even has a different cover in each place. So depending on where you are, it might look a little bit different. Um, but in the UK, it's published with uh, Woodenfelt and Nicholson. I think I've maybe got that pronounced correctly. Um, and published with Knopf in the US, both just coming out in January 2023. So this is hot off the presses, um, both literally in terms of being published, but also in terms of the ideas. This is a landmark work in a lot of ways that completely reframes the common understanding of the, quote, age of discovery, of the idea that European countries and European discoverers discovered the, quote, new world um, that we now know of as North and South America and the Caribbean. Um, This book completely reframes all of that and looks at it from a very different perspective and therefore adds a ton to our sort of colloquial understanding, as well as very much our scholarly and historical knowledge as well. So, Carolyn, I'm so glad to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Thank you so much for having me. So the book obviously has a lot that I want to get into, but before we do that, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining how we got to you writing this book? Yeah, of course. Uh, So I am a senior lecturer in international history at the University of Sheffield in the UK. That's a title that is so vague as to be almost meaningless, international history. Um, And what it means is that I started off actually as an Aztec Mexica historian working on Mesoamerican history, on ideas around gender and violence, and in particular on understanding how uh, Aztec civilization could how the people could live with human sacrifice without being dehumanized by it. That was what my first book was about. So I was used to trying to read sources against the grain to see things that weren't there, uh, the, the things that they weren't intended to be written for is what I mean. And um, I started to wonder while I was looking at these Mesoamerican civilizations, why it was that we heard so much about the Spanish coming West, Europeans, white men traveling to the Americas, and so little about indigenous people going the other way. And so I started making a note whenever I encountered one of these travellers, and it turned out there were really loads and loads of them. And so that was the start of a new project that became this book. That's, I think, always a really good sign when a book starts from sort of noticing something and going, huh, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I poke at that a little bit more? Um. Yes, exactly. So there's, for example, there's one really famous expedition when Cortes comes back to Europe for the first time after his successful defeat of the Aztec Mexica people. He comes back and he brings this great entourage, which includes a lot of indigenous people in 1528. And it's often talked about as this glamorous expedition with dancers and jugglers and ball players and so on. But what people very rarely talk about is that there were also a lot of nobility 
in that group with him. Um, maybe 25, 30 indigenous nobles who were there as diplomats trying to convince the Spanish crown to give them privileges and rights for their cities, for their families. And I, this group, if they're ever talked about at all, tend to be seen as exceptions. And the more I poked at it, as you say, the more I found that these actually are typical rather than exceptional. They're just the tip of a really large iceberg. Well, and this is, of course, the iceberg um, that the book very helpfully uncovers for us because there is a quite significant methodological challenge that you've already sort of alluded to, right? The idea of having to read sources against the grain um, and finding a lot of stuff, but it's still somehow, despite it being in the sources, hasn't really made it into the secondary literature, hasn't made it into the consciousness. So can you maybe, I guess you, you sort of said it as like, yeah, I read against the grain as if that's easy, which I think to you, it probably is. You're very expert on it. Um, but I think there's a lot of listeners who would be completely bowled over by these methodological challenges. So how, how does one read against the grain in this sense? Where do you find these mentions? I mean, how many archives did you have to look at for one thing? Well, I guess this is a, a term that we use, isn't it? And I, I take for granted reading against the grain, and perhaps not all listeners will be familiar with it. It's taking a source and trying to read it for a purpose that it wasn't originally intended, to unpick it, to look behind the facade of it. And the reason that that's so necessary for this period is that there are very few sources written by the indigenous travellers to Europe. We have, of course, many sources for indigenous history, many sources by indigenous people, but very few sources which relate specifically to these indigenous travellers. There are exceptions. So we have some amazing legal records, interestingly, from the two opposite ends of the spectrum, from uh, nobles who are at court and who, of course, write letters and petitions and so on. And then from people at the bottom of the social spectrum, from enslaved indigenous people who are appealing for their freedom. We have these amazing freedom suits. And then we do, of course, have exceptions. But often, we're dealing in talking about these people with sources written by Europeans who either just saw the people, or uh, in some cases, kidnapped them themselves or enslaved them, uh, or just met them in passing. So you're dealing with this quite fragmented set of sources. And I'm not the very first person to ever notice that some of these travellers have come across the Atlantic, I should say. But but as you said, they don't seem to have made that much of an impact on people's consciousness. One of the things that I want to do with the book, probably the most important thing, is to try and change the popular perception of the past, the wider sense of that past. Because I do have colleagues who've worked on individuals or groups from amongst this community. Amazing work by people like Nancy Van Duysen, um, um, sorry, Nancy Van Dusen, Andres Resendez, um, uh, and others, uh, Colt Rush, working on specific travellers or specific places. But despite that these indigenous people in Europe doesn't seem to have transformed the way the the wider sense of that period of history. People don't think of indigenous people in Europe as being some the norm, something that happens a lot. I was on another podcast uh, with Susanna Lipscomb, who is a Tudor specialist, and there's actually a Tudor king, as the sources call him, at the court of Henry VIII. And Susanna said to me, I didn't know he was there. And she's a specialist in that period. And she didn't realise that these people were present in Europe at that time. So there's this difficulty, I suppose, in, in shifting the way that we think about this period. And part of 
The reason for that is that we have so few sources, I think, by these people themselves. Now, you talked about the number of archives. I'm COVID means that an awful lot of this had to be done online, I'm afraid. And I'm sure there are other things to be found that I didn't find. I mean, my book covers everything from the Inuit uh, down through the Eastern United, what's now the Eastern United States, the Caribbean, Mexico, Peru, and uh, now what's now Brazil and the, the, the coast of South America. So I'm positive that there are some archival sources to be found that I did not find. I will be incredibly excited to hear about any more accounts. My book doesn't pretend to be comprehensive. Uh, But what it does do is to put together pieces from all across this wide area to kind of show how this was something that was happening all across the period and all across the Americas and across Europe. And I have quite a lot of archival sources actually from the archive of the Indies in Seville, where the Spanish crown put together these incredible records of their subjects and of the colonial period. They're quite micromanagers, the Spanish crown. So we have really good records for that period. And that's where we find a lot of these freedom suits that I mentioned, and also the letters and petitions from the nobility. That's just one of the archives that I did use. Thank you for explaining that um, and kind of situating the book and sort of some of what it's trying to do, how it relates to the literature. And of course, one of the ways that we can help change that consciousness is to actually just learn a bit more of the history as you discuss it in the book. So um, we are going to talk about kind of, as you said, both ends of society that tend to be especially well represented, the nobility and the slaves. Um, But I'd like to start, I guess, mildly arbitrarily with the nobility uh, because they do come over on uh, that first ship and we've already mentioned them a little bit. So as you've done in the book, maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of one of those especially highlighted or especially documented diplomatic expeditions um, and then help us understand to what extent is that one extraordinary or in fact quite representative of a thing that was happening in a lot of different courts. So I'm trying to decide which one to use, you see, because they're all so interesting. <laughs> yes, I made, I'm making you make that I decision. will be both exemplary and exceptional, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one that is particularly well accounted is the 1545 voyage of a Maya lord called Arpot Bats. And he comes to the court of Prince Philip, who is shortly to become Philip II. And he comes with a number of other Maya lords, Kekchi Maya lords. They travel from a place that's called San Juan Chamelco in what is now Guatemala, where he's a real hero in their histories because um, Arpopbats is the first person to voluntarily convert to Christianity in that region. And he does that in order to make accommodation with the Spanish and to protect his people, having seen what's going on in the regions around. He's the first Kekchi Catholic from that region. And he and a number of other lords put together this enormous expedition where they bring thousands of beautiful quetzal feathers. Uh, They bring cacao, pots, squash, all the different foodstuffs from the region. And there's enormous amounts of records which have been uncovered um, by some amazing work by Ashley Kistler with the community there. And 
this uh, expedition comes across the Atlantic in a way that is really quite typical. They have to trek overland and then they travel across the Atlantic and they come to the court. And when they arrive at the court, there's this wonderful story in the records where Philip is sleeping and he hears the birds that they've brought with them, these beautiful songbirds, and he leaps out of bed to come and see who these people are that have brought this stuff. And one of the reasons that our pot bats has become a hero in his people's history is that the story goes that he refuses to bow to Philip II. And because he says, I am also a king. I am a ruler. I'm not going to bow to you. And so it, it provides the basis for an accommodation. And so it seems like he is representing his people as an equal. Of course, though, what's going on in the backdrop of this, which is always happening, is the reality of that unequal balance of power. He is there to actually ask. You can see this incredible diplomatic strategy. He's there to ask for more missionaries and stuff for a church. And um, so the the um, story goes. Philip gives him the uh, not just the story. The, the records show this: these incredible uh, bells, big silver bells, one of which is still hanging in the church at San Juan. Uh, these incredible bells. Uh, it, uh, cloth, uh, scissors, uh, tools, gifts for the church, as well as a promise of more missionaries. And on the way back, supposedly the bells are so heavy that one of them sinks into the earth and you can still hear it ringing at night, according to the local legends and stories. One of the fascinating things about this is that it's also, these are the first people recorded making drinking chocolate in Europe. You hear when we talk about transforming the history, you hear these stories in which, oh, Cortez or Columbus brings back the secret of chocolate from the Americas. These are very poorly attested, in fact, not attested at all. And the very first record we have of anyone making drinking chocolate in Europe is these Maya Lords in 1545. So they are bringing over something that will transform much of our everyday lives. I eat a lot of chocolate. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Now, in some ways, our pot bats is expedition is really exceptional. It is wonderfully attested both in community records. They now have a a school named after him. They have a day in his honour and they've done a lot of education in the community and working with these local mythical histories around that, that heroism. They also have incredible community records as well as the records in Spain. Uh, And of course, this, this, from the point of view of the indigenous people as well, it is a great moment where they're sending a a huge expedition. So it's in some ways exceptional, but also it's entirely representative of the fact that lords from Mesoamerica are going backwards and forwards all the time, Uh, not just Mesoamerica, from from South America too. They're going backwards and forwards to the Spanish court constantly in this period. My book focuses uh, on the period up to the founding of Jamestown, so 1607. Uh, So a lot of what I'm talking about in terms of these expeditions, um, diplomatic embassies, is Spain. But you see similar things happening in England, in France, in the Netherlands as the periods go on. And as I mentioned, there's a, a Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII who is there on a diplomatic embassy. Now, our pot bats is particularly independent, particularly powerful. Some others come from a position of greater weakness uh, or who uh, are um, much less influential. But nonetheless, it's just, again, I'm struggling for another metaphor than the tip of the iceberg. He is just one of many that we see uh, a lot of whose stories I tell in the book, but by no means all of them. 
Well, and the idea that some of them are more powerful than others, I mean, that would be true of the rulers that we might be more familiar with, right? There is a difference between the king of France versus a duchy of something in what is today Germany, but at the time, you know, was not on the same level as the Holy Roman Emperor or something like that. So I think it's worth, uh, one thing I was thinking of when I was reading the book was just kind of constantly drawing parallels in order to put these people that many of whom for me were new kind of in the same frame of reference rather than as some sort of other it's like no we actually we we do know what it's like to have monarchs some of whom are powerful some of whom are not some of whom kind of have lots of gifts and are impressive and some of whom kind of have to beg for things more um yeah absolutely you're you're quite right it's simply slotting these people into our picture of this period where i think they've often been missing and and sometimes the power dynamics are very different in europe to what they would be in their homeland so uh, walter raleigh when he's imprisoned in the tower of london for example in 1603 one of his two servants there is an indigenous man who we know as Harry. And he seems to be a servant for Raleigh for a number of years. But then when Raleigh later, a number of years later, goes back to the Americas, Harry is the cacique, he's the chief. And Raleigh goes to see his old friend, as he calls him, and Harry keeps him waiting. And it's quite clear that he is making sure that the power dynamic is reversed now that Raleigh is the one in the precarious position who needs his help, who's ill and wants supplies and so on. So those power dynamics shift as well, depending on the context that you're in. So speaking of power dynamics um, and going back to the idea of the Spanish crown in particular being um, incredibly obsessed with sort of points of law and keeping track of every administrative detail, um, I was really interested uh, to learn that, uh, and I believe it's specifically from Isabella of Castile that kind of decides this or at least influences it, um, indigenous people kind of writ large were considered vassals of the Spanish crown, which is a really particular type of relationship um, and and was kind of for the category almost of indigenous people, not particularly differentiated or nuanced. Um, first of all, kind of why was that category chosen? Um, and what was the impact of this as sort of relations and ties across the ocean continue and deepen? So what's important to understand is that uh, after Columbus goes to the Americas for the first time, the Spanish crown appealed to the Pope for a a papal bull granting them the rights to these new lands. And this papal bull, one of a number of what are called the bulls of donation, Portugal have some similar ones for uh, uh, mostly Africa, um, is it says you can have these lands, but it's on condition that you evangelize the people of these lands. And so in order to legitimize their power in the Americas, it's essential that the Spanish crown evangelize these people. And to do that, they have to recognize them as fully human, something that the Pope also declares them in 1537, as fully human and as vassals, full subjects of the crown. If they treat them any differently, then they immediately undercut their legitimacy for being there. The difficulty is that that sets up a a difficult balance for some people between wanting to evangelize what are seen as these new Christians, these innocents who need rescuing and bringing to the faith, and a desire to exploit and oppress and enslave people. 
And so you get laws being written and you can see that uh, Ferdinand, Isabella's husband, is much keener on enslaving people than she is. The minute uh, Isabella dies, um, there are a number of new uh, enslaving licenses granted, for example. So, you know, we can talk about crown policy, but actually it's also about what individuals think. Um, But in, in the main... Indigenous people are declared to be vassals, and that means they cannot be enslaved except under certain particular circumstances. And those are if they're being rescued from a worse fate, which is usually slavery to a non-Christian, because of course, what could be worse than that, Uh, or from being a, a sacrificial victim, if they are cannibals. And so people like Ferdinand go around declaring whole swathes of islands to be cannibal islands, for example. This is where we get the idea of carib, uh, a word associated with cannibal and the the Caribbean. Um, Or uh, in the event that they are captured in a just war. And so, of course, you get people being imprisoned and they say, well, these people were rebelling against us and so they've been justly captured. The interesting thing is that while maybe a million indigenous people, according according to Andres Resendez, are enslaved in just the first hundred years after the Spanish invasion, the Spanish crown actually go to quite great lengths to try and ban indigenous enslavement. So that's why we have these freedom suits. And in 1542, they actually declare that there are no exceptions. Nobody can be enslaved. Even before 1542, we have these fascinating cases. So, for example, uh, a young man called Martin, who in 1536... Uh, applies for his freedom from a a famous figure in Mexican history, Gonzalo de Salazar, who was a a brutal man. Uh, um, He actually is exiled to Spain and Martin goes with him. And Martin manages to appeal for his freedom on the grounds that he had been enslaved as a child and therefore must have been illegally enslaved. He has been branded on the face. He believed he was going to be a free servant, but was Uh, dragged into slavery. And so you have these incredible cases that speak not even to whether slavery was considered legitimate, but what grounds it was. And it's important to recognise as well that the idea of the vassals and not being able to be enslaved only applied to people who are subject to the Spanish crown. So if you're from Portuguese territories, well, that doesn't count. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're uh, an Indio in the the language of the time. it has to be someone who is Indio and from a Spanish territory. So you get all these disputes about whether people are legally enslaved, which from a a contemporary point of view, of course, feels like the wrong argument, doesn't it? (laughs) It does really feel like the wrong debate. It's like, no, no, you're all wrong. Um, Why don't you just come over here, please? Um, but, But this kind of, in some ways, your answer just now implies a sort of extra function that the law is playing in a way, or at least really highlights the importance of the law, um, which again is not really part of the colloquial consciousness of this period of history or kind of the relations between um, the conquering European kingdoms and the indigenous territory that they're invading. Um, We don't really think necessarily in terms of the law as part of the thing that gets rid of rights. We think about economics, we think about religion, um, sometimes we think about technology. Um, But I was really fascinated that one of the reasons these sources are so tricky, one of the reasons you have to read them against the grain, is actually kind of on purpose words are being used to hide things. 
And it goes back to, in a way, kind of what you were just saying, this idea of the Pope laid out the rules. And so we're going to kind of only talk about things in particular ways so that it looks like we're following the rules. But it wasn't just about, are you in Spanish territory or Portuguese territory? It wasn't just about, oh, we're going to call you a cannibal and therefore we can enslave you. It went way further than that. Could you explain a bit how? Like the terms used to describe people in court documents and who was given different sorts of labels and um, kind of what sort of implications that had, for example, when it comes to like enslavement, um, enslavement claims or freedom suits. I see what you mean. So yeah, language is incredibly important and legal statuses are incredibly important because there are legal forms of um, oppression and illegal forms of oppression. People go to quite great lengths to ensure that they're legalizing what they're doing. So from the very beginning, you see, for example, people being described with words like loro, which means brown, rather than being called indio, in order that they can be brought into Europe. And there are some senses in which your legal status doesn't matter. So the vast mass of the laboring class in the um, in Europe probably is experiencing quite a, a hard, difficult, often quite violent, quite disease-ridden experience, right? So uh, there's some question about whether if you are an indigenous person or even a European who has been brought from the Americas as a servant, as part of someone's household, you're probably still very vulnerable. You're away from home. You are um, subject very likely, especially if you're a woman or a child, to sexual violence within your home uh, and to violence from your master, whether you are enslaved or free. And yet freedom does matter enormously in some other ways and for some other people, if that makes sense. So there's an amazing case that Nancy Van Dusen uncovered of a woman who is of mixed black and white heritage. She's called mulatta in the sources, which isn't isn't a term we use now. That's what, what she's called in the sources, who claims to be an Indio woman because she wants to be freed from enslavement. And it's a really tragic case. She starts screaming in the town square until a, uh, a man, a lawyer, says, what's going on? She appeals. She says she's illegally enslaved. And in court, she begs the daughter of the woman she's pretending to be to say, "I, I t- t- tell them I'm your mother. And the daughter refuses. And she is tortured and in the end admits to lying and so is held, uh, is remains enslaved. And it's this tragic case of where just the legal language being called India or being called, in her case, India or Malata are the terms in the source, can make the, the greatest difference to someone's experience while at the same time in some ways feeling like the smallest thing, if you see what I mean. Mm. It's really, really tragic. And there's one amazing source where just being called Indio is considered to confer on you rights. And so they keep calling this man Indio in the legal records and his owner, the man who asserts a claim over him, says you can't call him that because by calling him that you're acknowledging that he has these legal rights. And so when he loses his case, they scrub all of that out of the records. They erase his identity literally from the legal records, because in losing the case, he's been denied that identity. 
it's it's incredible how what are quite dry records can sometimes feel very very immediate and really really moving mm. and certainly the way that they're discussed um in the book for listeners um in case you haven't realized by now i'm sure you have um we are in many senses doing a whistle stop tour of the book and so um for anyone interested in reading it in depth there are a lot of cases um, and examples of particular uh, Indigenous peoples' either travels or settling um, in Europe uh, with a lot of detail and richness um, that is kind of surprising when we think of the dry documents that they initially um, came from. And that's kind of one of the other kind of types of experiences I'd like to turn to now that we have at least a little taste of the idea of the splendor of some of the noble visitors um, as well as the tragedy, really, of um, the up to, as you said, a million in the first century uh, indigenous people who are enslaved. Um, it's not just quite those two categories of indigenous people uh, that are in Europe. Uh, there are travelers, there are the people, as you said, bringing over drinking chocolate, bringing over a whole bunch of things that maybe they, their uh, contribution in them does not get picked up, like tobacco, for example. Um, but of course, they were experiencing like really strange places for them that were not at all like home. And so the same way that we do have conceptions of, you know, what did Col Columbus think of when he went to the Caribbean or whatever, um, we have those records in our imagination, the impressions of it. What were the impressions of indigenous travelers when they encountered places like Seville or places like London? It's really hard to tell in a lot of cases because we have, as I said at the beginning, very few of these people's individual voices recorded. So some of understanding this is speculating. And it's also really important to emphasize that people had very different experiences and would have had very different responses. So for example, people from Mexico would have been used to coming from a built up urban environment. So they probably wouldn't have been nearly as surprised by places like Seville and Madrid as people from uh, what is um, now the South Carolina and the coast of the United States would have been being brought to London, where you're going from relatively small communities to huge urban environments. So they must have had very different responses. We do have a few accounts, though, and the themes that come up are really frequent. And the main theme that comes up over and over again is inequality. Indigenous people are absolutely astonished by the inequality that exists in Europe, by the hoarding of resources, by the fact that... Um, so uh, when Michel de Montaigne meets three Tupinamba men, he wrote a famous essay about this, this French essayist, meets three Tupinamba men from Brazil, and he says that these men didn't understand why people weren't burning down the palaces when they were outside with no food, nothing to eat. And that's reflected in 1610, a young man called Savignon, who's a, a Wyandot, went to France, was brought there by Samuel de Champlain. And he says he was just shocked by the people begging for food alongside the palaces. That idea of inequality comes up over and over, and it comes up again in later sources by indigenous people written themselves in later centuries about their travels. Now, this isn't to say that there's no inequality in indigenous civilizations across uh, the Americas, but even in places like the Aztec Mexica capital, where you have extreme wealth, you have very little in the way of abject poverty. There tend to be resources for redistribution, uh, either communal grain stores or um, 
shared uh, resources is is much more of a thing. This idea of reciprocity is a much greater thing. So it's not to say everybody was equal. I'm not talking about a, a utopian communalism in the Americas, but they are absolutely shocked at, at this inequality. We also get um, complaints about children ruling over kingdoms. Why on earth would warriors follow these young children? What are they doing there? Why, why aren't people, why aren't these strong rulers taking charge? Um, and I mean, Savignon is, is quite shocked by children being hit and by um, violence in the name of justice. Now, I'm sure that Aztec Mexica people wouldn't have been shocked by violence in the name of justice, but he certainly is. So you have these different responses, but the one that comes up over and over is this real surprise at the extent of inequality and of poverty. Mm. I found that really interesting, not so much because of the response, but because um, obviously the term indigenous peoples groups together a whole bunch of different cultures and languages and traditions. So the idea that there's kind of anything that is so consistently reported is interesting in and of itself and then that it's that also tells us something about um sort of ways in which these societies were different from each other but also ways in which they weren't absolutely i mean we it's really difficult to talk about the indigenous experience isn't it or or native people's experience because there there were more than a hundred there there still are more than 100 indigenous languages in Mexico alone. There are hundreds of different tribal groups in America, in Canada. This is an incredibly diverse set of people. So I always feel like a bit of a fraud in trying to uh, represent them because there's no way I can do justice to this enormous range of experiences and attitudes. So all you can do is to shed light on these small parts. And, And of course, there are senses in which you want to try and say, well, Europeans think more this way and indigenous people think more this way. So for example, I I have a chapter where I talk about stuff, which I keep insisting on calling stuff because if we call it commodities or products, then we're immediately marketizing it, turning it into something about the economy. And for me, that, that is more a European way of thinking than it is an indigenous way of thinking. The difficulty is, of course, that indigenous people also have trade and markets and commodities, and Europeans also have uh, spiritual ways of thinking about stuff. So you end up with all these footnotes saying, well, of course, I'm not I'm not talking about everybody, or this isn't a, a universal, but you do, in trying to tell a big story like this for a, a wide audience, have to generalise in some ways, I think, even while you might have a lot of endnotes that caveat what you're talking about. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the endnotes because I think actually the stuff one was my favorite. Um, so I'm glad that you mentioned that one. It was a very um, clear and also entertaining um, caveat. So I'm glad you mentioned that for listeners to have an idea of a little bit of the reading experience. Well, my book has both footnotes and endnotes. Oh, <laughs> I yes. don't think there are many popular books that have both. <laughs> and um, I was very... Uh, grateful that my um, publishers allowed me to have all the scholarly endnotes that I wanted, as well as some sarcastic footnotes. They did take out some of my sarcastic footnotes, (laughs) I'm afraid, but there are some of them survived the editing process. All right. Well, now that you've brought it up, I do want to go slightly off-piste and ask about that, because uh, 
in some senses, the footnotes, the, the snarky footnotes were very familiar to me because that's very much how, in my experience at least, academics within the same field kind of talk to each other. Right? Those are the sorts of comments that quite often we will put in our own drafts when we're sending it out to our colleagues to look at um, or annotate on someone else's draft of something. Um, and we sort of have these nice little codes such that by the time something gets published as an academic book, um, sort of the in-group kind of knows that that's actually quite snarky, but it doesn't look like it quite so obviously. And then, of course, if we write for popular press, um, you know, that, that all gets taken out. So how exactly did you decide to include them and even conceptualize how you wanted your voice to come across in those footnotes? It's, that's a really good question. I guess that's my voice. As you suggested, you know, we have the way we talk and then the way we talk to colleagues and we, and then we have the scholarly voice, don't we? And so I've always wanted to talk to a wider audience than just academics. I was always kind of, well, if I think it's interesting, why wouldn't I want to talk to lots of people about it? So my first book, although it is an academic one, I think is it's considered reasonably readable for an academic book, if that makes sense. I tried to make it interesting. And then I became a blog editor for a period of time, um, just over a decade ago. And that made me really aware of how you write, much, much more consciously aware of trying to engage people with the style, if you see what I mean. So by the time I came to write this book, I, I wanted it to be in my voice. And I, my agent said that um, my book pitch was the first one he'd ever seen that had footnotes and endnotes. <laughs> And I think most of them don't even have endnotes or footnotes. Yeah, I was going to say, even for <laughs> a pitch, goodness. Mine had both. And for me, it's kind of a way of balancing the scholarly and and my, my not my popular voice, but almost my personal voice, my internal monologue. So I think of the footnotes, and there were more of them to start with. There's like a little sidebar where I'm talking to the audience you don't have to read them to understand the book, but it gives you a, just a little insight into what someone might be thinking or just a little bit more. It's, it's almost like a, a sarcastic aside or an interesting aside or a little insight in, into an extra thought about that thing. And those don't all survive the editing process. Your um, editor says, are you sure we really need this? <laughs> Aren't you just going off on a tangent? <laughs> and so the the footnotes, sorry, the, the end notes are there to give colleagues, scholars, or anybody else who wants it, all the information they need to follow up on what I said, to validate it, to check it, to carry on the work, to look more into what I was talking about, because it was a really scholarly piece of research as well. This isn't just a, an overview. I went and did a lot. I did all, I went back to the primary sources every single time that I could and found original primary sources. And the footnotes are my conversational voice, if that makes sense. So, um, there's a bit of a, when people talk about discovering, I think of that as a really good example. So when people talk about Columbus discovering a place, every time I say it, I kind of have these heavy mental inverted commas, these scare quotes, because you can't discover a place when millions of people are already living there. It's like me coming around and discovering your house. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. And so that kind of thing is something which in scholarly writing might be taken for granted, but which I I want to draw the reader into that thinking about it as well, if you sort of mean to kind of 
point at it and say, but look, this thing doesn't make sense. Or look, this other thing's interesting that you might think about. That's how I think about well, the footnotes. And, and the two examples you've just given there of discovered and stuff um, really goes back to the point you were making earlier about um, the importance of language. And how in, for example, these legal documents, we can see that, well, if you call someone this, then that actually means that they have these rights. If you call someone this, it's not just the word in and of itself, it's the implications that come with it that we have to pay attention to. And that's completely the case, even when we're talking sort of in modern language about things that we all think we know what they mean. Um, I found the footnotes really interesting and sort of poking at words that maybe otherwise wouldn't get a look at and go, oh yeah, hang on a second. What does it mean if we say discovery? Whose voice are we completely shutting out? Absolutely. And and words like brought, people were brought to Europe or they were taken to Europe. Now you're hiding a whole conversation there about consent, aren't you? Did they agree to come? Were they kidnapped? Are we reading too much into that word? Maybe they did agree. How do we know? And language is really so vital. I mean, the book starts with a comment on words and on language. And for me, thinking about language is, is a conscious way of just trying to invite people to think about things in a different way saying overtly, look, hang on, here's how we've always thought about things. Here's how we've always talked about things. Instead of doing it like that, maybe let's think about it in a different point of view. And language can really do that. So calling the Americas Turtle Island, as many people in um, what is now the United States do, instead of calling it America. Because of course, the concept of America doesn't exist before Europeans arrive and Amerigo Vespucci is mistakenly uh, cl- credited with being the discoverer. It's sort of named after him. Just little things like that. And so I try where I can to use people's own words for themselves, for their people, to be aware that there's a legacy here, that that these things matter. And I, I know that some people will say, oh, that's a bit much. I just, just tell me the interesting stories. You know, I, I don't need to be given the complicated words. I don't need to be thinking about that. Okay, but you know this what i'm trying to do as we is which is kind of where we started is to flip people's point of view to to give a different starting point to this period of history and so language is part of that and of of trying to to change that perspective and just get people to think about it in a different way so one of the aspects that um i was very pleased that the book looked at in a different way that flipped the script on was, um, of course, the church. Because even just in what we've discussed so far, um, the role of the church, the role of the Pope is clearly incredibly important in determining um, a lot of the parameters of the interactions between Europeans and indigenous peoples. Um, And we tend to think of it that way. We tend to think of it as the Catholic church sort of going over there and imposing itself. And Obviously, in a lot of ways, that is literally true. Missionaries did go um, to these places and did literally impose themselves. Um, But you also look at the book, in the book, on the work the other way. What impact did the indigenous peoples have on Catholicism and Christianity? Because, of course, it's a two-way street. If you're interacting with someone else, um, there's going to be some sort of impact the other way. So, that was somewhere I was really interested in kind of how you flipped the perspective there. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about the impact of indigenous peoples on the church. 
Yeah, there's there's been a huge amount of work, of course, on ideas like syncretism, the mixing of Catholicism and of indigenous religions in the Americas to create a new kind of faith. Even if you look at Mexican Catholicism today, it's not the same as Spanish or Italian Catholicism. They have many practices and rituals and beliefs that are very distinctive and unique to their context, to their environment and to their heritage. It's hard to trace the same kind of process taking place in Europe because the majority of indigenous people who come to Europe are either brought for the purposes of evangelization or are in a context where it would be incredibly unwise to express unorthodox views. So you have this fascinating thing where the church are bringing over young people deliberately in order to teach them the faith with the idea that they will be then sent back to the Americas to convert their fellows. You see that happening with uh, the French crown and the peoples of, of what are now Canada. You see that happening in Spain, in Portugal. It's a really common practice. And you see similar things with Britain, though they tend to be more concerned with showing that people can be civilized than that they can be Christianized actually in Britain. Now, what that means is that you have often young men, occasionally women, being taken to uh, monasteries and convents. Um, Famously, Guadalupe in Spain. We know that there were indigenous people present at Guadalupe being taught the faith at a shrine where there is a dark-skinned saint. The thing that they're going to be asked to worship is a a dark-skinned icon of a saint. How would they have felt about that? And and a saint that's particularly associated with ending epidemics at a time when their peoples were um, being decimated, of course, by epidemics as well as violence. How would they have seen that exchange? And we just don't know. We do know, though, that they're present and they are forming ideas about belief and about Christianity in in Spain itself at the heart of empire. We know that there are these incredible exchanges taking place of education, of belief, of faith. We know that this is, again, the norm, that these people are ubiquitous in Europe. What we don't have is very good evidence, though, for how these people saw things or for how they interacted, but it would seem extremely unusual if they weren't going through the same kinds of processes as was happening in the Americas, where we have much better evidence. And we know that some people became um, fervent converts, absolute believers who were completely converted and others totally rejected the faith and said, what on earth is this? And we do see among the indigenous people who travel to Europe, really different responses to their experience. So Manteo and Wanchese, who are two people from Roanoke and Croatan uh, on the coast of um, the United States. Uh, Roanoke, of course, famous island, the the place of the, the lost colony. And they are brought across to London in 1584. And they work with a man called Thomas Harriet on the first Algonquian language Latin alphabet and Osimokamuk alphabet. It's often credited to Harriet, but it's become clear that they're really involved in that. The first time that they go back to their homeland in 1585, 
Manteo remains very allied to the British. He works with them. He is baptized. He is sufficiently trusted and is considered sufficiently Christianized and a, a man like us that they give him his own gun, which is almost unheard of. They don't give pieces, as they're called, or guns to indigenous people at all in this period. But Manteo gets his own gun. Wanchese, the second they land, he disappears. And as far as we can tell, he foments the local people where he's from against the English. So you have this incredible range of responses, just as is happening and is better documented for the Americas, where we have a lot more writing. It seems that exactly the same thing is happening in Europe, but we have to, again, look a little bit harder to see those different responses. Hmm. I think there's that might be one area where there's more to be discovered that could be very exciting. Um, I really hope there is. Mm. I, I I do know a friend told me that there's a, an archive um, that she has worked in, which is uh, about indigenous people in Spain, and it records indigenous people being present in the Franciscan houses. But again, she said all the records are just about them being there. They're mm. not by those people themselves, sadly. Mm. Well, fingers crossed we will find something. That would be really good. Um, Interestingly, though, there is one area that we may not have a great amount of documentation about um, kind of how the the, the people that introduced these changes. Um, But we do quite literally have documentation of the impact of indigenous travelers in Europe on language, because there's a whole bunch of words that we we only have because um, of the indigenous peoples. Uh, So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that sort of area in which um, indigenous people caused enacted change uh, for Europe. Yeah, language is so much influenced by indigenous languages, and I think people just don't realize it. So the word canoe is from Carib Arawakan, uh, Caribbean language. Uh, it's not just the thing, but also the word is Caribbean. And of course, is an incredibly important technology as well, is adopted quite early by Europeans. Another word that is also a technology is hammocks. The That's from Taino. And the introduction of hammocks absolutely revolutionizes shipboard life from the late 16th century. If you imagine before they encounter the Taino and their hammocks, everybody is crammed in lying on the floor in these ships. The introduction of the hammock transforms shipboard life, much easier to put away, much more space inside. You often do have these coastal words. So words like buccanier, buccaneer which comes from bukan, uh, which is smoked meat, which is a Tupi word, uh, a word from Brazil. And um, it's associated with the kind of meat that the buccaneers, the, the people on the coast had. Of course, it's often associated with stuff, not always, but it is often associated with stuff, with the things that come. So uh, from Nahuatl, which is the Aztec Mexica language, we have avocados and tomatoes, uh, chilies, chocolate, not just the stuff, but the words are from those languages. Uh, From Inuit, we have Anorak, uh, Algonquians, give us toboggans and uh, moccasins, words like this. And it's so fascinating how depending on which indigenous culture encountered which European society, how those languages differ. So chocolate, you know, is a word that cuts right across. We have words, uh, you know, 
chocolate in English, chocolate in Spanish, chocolat in French, chocolate in German. You know, it's really similar, isn't it, in all these different languages. Um, but if you think about, uh, so the Spanish used the words tiza, for example, which means chalk, because they met the nahua. But that word hasn't come into use in English, where French have a lot of tupi words, like ananas, pineapple, for pineapple, which comes from the tupi word nanas. And so you have these stories of encounter being built into the language that we use every day. And it's also the stuff that we use every day. You mentioned tobacco. Tobacco is uh, not a popular product nowadays, by and large, uh, in in many parts of the world, but it is an incredibly pervasive one. And smoking is an indigenous practice. People weren't smoking. They weren't chewing tobacco. They weren't using pipes. They weren't didn't have cigarettes. It. It's an entirely indigenous practice which has been adopted wholesale and which but which people don't think of as being indigenous. This is one of the most important things for me, I think, is just reminding people of the roots of so many of these things. When people think of tomatoes, they think of Italian cooking. They don't think of the Americas. When people think of potatoes, they think of it, Irish cuisine, perhaps, or of a, a Sunday roast here. Um, they don't think these are products of the Americas. I mean, imagine East Asian or Indian or West African cooking without chilies. It's almost inconceivable, isn't it? People people can't imagine what that must have been like. But 500 years ago, these cuisines were totally different. And that's, I guess, is the bigger story of the book is this attempt to just highlight the cosmopolitan roots of the world that we live in today. I mean, we could, we're all migrants historically. You know, we could go back in England, I can go back to the Romans, or I could go back to the Angles and the Saxons. There's wave after wave of different encounter, and I'm just highlighting one. But that one is so often seen as being driven by Europeans. 1492, Columbus encounters the Americas and opens up the beginnings of the global world. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's it's not just him. It's not just Columbus and Walter Raleigh. Walter Raleigh and his tobacco and potatoes. Tobacco and potatoes were both in Europe long before Raleigh even thought of heading to the Americas. And indigenous people were among those that carried them mm. to Europe. And so I, I, it's that question of transformation, right, of, of shifting the dial on the way people see this past. Well, I think that that is a perfect place to end our discussion of the book because it touches on um, so many of the key things that you're doing in the book and, of course, on um, some of the points, at least, that we've managed to cover in the discussion. Hopefully, we've done uh, we, we've covered a bunch of the things that were interesting. Obviously, listeners can read the whole book to um, get all of the different pieces and ways in which the impact and transformation um is much more apparent than we perhaps remember. And hopefully once um, more people read the book, that will maybe change. Uh, which really leads me only with to my final question, uh, which always seems a little bit unfair, but kind of particularly in this sense, because the book has literally just come out. Uh, but obviously you've been working on it for quite a while. And the way that publishing books work, I understand, is one has to submit them ages before they actually are in anyone's hands. Um, so is there anything that you are currently working on or looking to work on next that you'd like to give the audience a sneak preview of? So it is a, this is a difficult question because, I, as you say, I've only just 
finished this book and I'm focusing really on talking about this book and about the stories that came from this book and some more stories that I didn't have the chance to tell in this book. Uh, And I'm also working on a cultural history of Latin America. I'm going to be doing the earliest volume of that. Mm. And I'm working on a kind of secret project for my (laughs) next book, which I hope will be a trade book, which I'm not ready to talk about yet because I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Um, If you'll forgive me, I did want to mention that my American publisher has agreed to give a free copy of the book to any tribal library or similar indigenous community organization that would like one. And so as part of talking about the book and and spreading the word, um, if anybody represents an organization like that, I realize that not every indigenous community has has a tribe or tribal library in that way, which is why it's loosely defined. Please just drop me a line, an email or on Twitter or whatever. And my American publisher, Knopf Penguin, they will be delighted to send a copy. So I guess, yeah, I'm not quite sure where I am. Honestly, I'm in that, um, what's the word, in the, in that kind of marooned <laughs> place that writers find themselves when they've just finished a giant project and are still really talking about it mm-hmm. and in it and trying to find my brain again so I can write about something different. Well, any listeners who want to um, join Caroline in this um, are very welcome to read the book, which again is titled On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. Um, it's just come out in the US and the UK. And um, so get your copies wherever it might be convenient. Uh, Caroline, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you ever so much for having me on.